Welcome to the Healing Grove Podcast. I'm Dr. Kristen Ryman, an integrative holistic family physician, author of Life After Lyme, and host in this virtual space of learning, healing, and growing. I believe humans are like trees, and our physical limb is only one of many. Health on all limbs of the tree, emotional, conceptual, social, spiritual, is absolutely required for the whole tree that is you to be vibrantly well. I created the Healing Grove podcast as a place to showcase some of the world's best integrative and holistic medicine, to expose you to transformative tools and mindset shifts for all limbs of your tree. I hope you enjoy our conversation in the Healing Grove today as much as I enjoyed having it. So everyone, this is Dr. Susan Pierce Thompson. She's an adjunct professor of uh, adjunct associate professor of brain and cognitive sciences at the University of Rochester. She's also a New York Times bestselling author and an expert in the psychology of eating. As president of the Institute of Sustainable Weight Loss and the CEO of Brightline Eating Solutions, she's dedicated to helping people achieve long-term sustainable weight loss. And she and her team are on a mission to help 1 million people get into their bright bodies by 2030. Wow, that's an awesome goal and intention. Her program utilizes cutting edge research to explain how the brain blocks weight loss. And every day she teaches people how to undo the damage that they've done in their brain so they can have peace and freedom around food. And I am super excited to hear what you're going to talk about today. I know it has something to do with food and something to do with addiction and something to do with the brain. Three of my sort of favorite topics from different angles. But before we get into that, Susan, I would love for you to share with this community kind of what your journey has been like that brought you to this place where you're sharing this important information. Oh, thanks, Kristen. It's so sweet to be with you. And hi, everyone out there. Hi, hi, hi. Um, Yeah, my journey is just, I mean, really, it's one of addiction, a lot of addiction, and a lot of seeking and searching. And um, I started uh, life in San Francisco, California. My parents were hippies. And um, by the age of 14, I started doing drugs. And I was, I was doing drugs uh, experimentally um, to party, to have fun, to meet boys, um, and also to, to curb my eating, to take off weight a little bit. I was already concerned about my weight. And the drugs I used escalated and uh, I found crystal meth or speed, which is a, it's just a scourge. It's a wicked, wicked uh, thing, but it, it made me feel so good. And it really took away my appetite, which at the time felt like already, I think I was 16 at the time, already felt like such a mercy to just have the voracious appetite kind of removed. And um, I graduated from there to freebasing cocaine and smoking crack. And I dropped out of high school and prostituted to get more crack. And it just became a nightmare. And when I was 20 years old, I got struck clean and sober. I got taken to a 12 step meeting for drug and alcohol uh, recovery. And I haven't had a drink or a drug since. So I've been clean now for 28 years. Wow. Congratulations. I got to find my little congratulation emoji. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, You know, and that is the biggest miracle of my life by far. That is the date, the the date on which my whole life pivots, August 9th, 1994. But really, honestly, my struggles with addiction were not over because my addiction hopscotched right back to food. And I gained a ton of weight that fast. And that started me on a cycle of trying to figure out my food addiction. I, I was able to identify pretty quickly that I was addicted to food because I was using it the way I was using crack. I could see 
And I, I know that sounds like such a strong statement. Like, how can you use food? Like you use crack cocaine, but I was, I was staying up late and binging through, you know, for hours. And I would get my paraphernalia, my bags and boxes and my, my concoctions and my foods. And I would, and I would go out, smoke a cigarette, come back in and eat more food. And it was like this, this hours upon hours thing that I was doing. And I was using food. Like I used to use drugs. And so by the age of 21, I knew I was a food addict and, um, recovery from food addiction is just alas, much harder than recovery from drug addiction for so many reasons. I think the biggest one is that you have to keep, you have to keep eating. So you have to find, you have to find a way to define your eating life so that you know what the first drink or drug is, you know, what, you know, where your food ends and the, and the addictive food begins so that you can draw that line. And so bright line eating is the program. I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself now. I lost my excess weight when I was 28. Um, I don't know, eight years after I started looking for a solution to my food addiction, I did lose it in a 12 step food addiction program. Um, and I, I tried many 12 step food programs and there's lots of them and some of them are very good. And, and it, a lot of it depends on the sponsor you have and so forth. Um, in my professional life, after I got clean and sober, I went to college. Um, I went to community college at first. Thank God for the community college system, because I was able to go from being a high school dropout to transferring to UC Berkeley thanks to San Jose city college. And, um, you know, love California's public system and their, their whole community college system. It's a lot of my friends. I mean, I grew up in California too. And a lot of my people did that same thing and it's, and siblings. It's a beautiful system. The beautiful system, you know, and I graduated from UC Berkeley with 4.0s and spoke at the graduation and, you know, um, went to get my PhD in brain and cognitive sciences and dedicated myself to studying the mind and the brain. And, and in particular, I was always fascinated by how, how addiction works in the brain and how a brain like mine could go so far off the rails. Um, and so I ended up spending, um, you know, almost two decades as a college psychology professor and teaching at colleges and universities around the world. And, one of the courses I taught was the psychology of eating. And I ended up teaching a unit in that course on the neuroscience of food addiction. And so I started teaching about food addiction and, um, and I had my own food addiction recovery and I was teaching it at university. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just got struck in, a, in my morning meditation one morning to write a book about it, to write a book about how the brain gets hijacked by these addictive foods in our food environment and how, um, how that way of eating that's so addictive ends up, ends up convincing us that we don't love ourselves, that we don't value ourselves, even that we loathe ourselves because we watch ourselves break our own most earnest promises to ourselves around food, where we intend to eat this. And then we feel like we're deciding in the clutch moment, no, I'll just eat this, you know, and we indulge in this food, but we don't realize how our brain is hijacked. And that wasn't really a choice any more than when you're promising yourself, you're going to hold your breath for 15 minutes, you know, and at some point you choose to breathe. It's not really a choice, right? Your brain is demanding what it thinks it needs at that moment. And 
our food environment is, is hijacking our brain in that way. So anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself now, but I, I committed to write a book called bright line eating. And that started the bright line eating movement because I started an email list to explain and disseminate information about the psychology and neuroscience of what it really takes to lose your excess weight and keep it off. I'm, I'm, I went from obese to slender when I was 28 and I'm 48 now it's, you know, almost 20 years now that I've been living in my right size body. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't peddle thinness on push, push thinness on people. I really believe in body integrity and, and people having, that's why I don't even talk about thin anymore. I talk about a bright body, you know, a body, a body that feels in integrity for you, you know? Um, but I do know that a lot of the weight that a lot of folks are carrying doesn't feel right for them. It, it, it feels like a manifestation of a relationship with food. That's not fully aligned. And that's the problem that I try to help people solve. So anyway, that's, I come by this, honestly, lots of pain, lots of years of experience, lots of tears, lots of writing letters to God in the fetal position, crying on the floor. <laughs> and, well, I mean, and that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've heard you talk about uh, maybe in one of your webinars, I've heard you talk about that kind of moment, like that epiphany. And I'm, I'm kind of a junkie for epiphany stories. So if you want to share that, I would be super psyched, but that, you know, that transformation basically where you sort of saw the light, saw the, that moment, right. That, that pivot was clear for you. So you can talk about that if you want, I'm inviting you to formally, but I also want to hear, um, I want to hear about the addict brain, because I know there are some people on this call who are like, well, I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if I'm the kind of person who has this relationship to food that's a problem, or I'm wondering how I would know if it were a problem. Like, do you have a way to help people kind of sort themselves in terms of, you know, should I be thinking of myself as a person who might need bright light eating or not? Yeah, totally. Um, happy to talk about epiphany moments. I've had so many of them that you'll have to be more specific because <laughs> oh my gosh, I've had a lot of, I, I meditate for 30 minutes every morning and I don't, I don't get you know, white lights every morning, but I do often have experiences. So we can go there if you want to um, just be more specific for me. So I know which, <laughs> which moment to share. And then, I mean, I already shared one, a yeah. baby, which was, you know, my, my inner voice, God, self universe, whatever it was said, write a book called bright line eating and that, and I, and I pulsed with the need in our world for real information about how the brain works with food and how to break free if you're trapped in an addictive relationship with food. Um, so that, that, that was a big epiphany. That was a big one. Was that the first one or was that, were you already a meditator then and already kind of used to this experience of like connecting to your higher self or God or whatever you want to call it? Like, was that, or was that new? I'd been meditating every morning for 30 minutes for about 10 years at that point. Um, is that right? Yeah. 11 years. And, um, the, you know, the, the moment before that, that, that stands out is when I was in the crack house and, and I, and I had a, a moment of clarity where I knew that if I didn't get up and get out of that crack house, right. That second, that that's all I was ever going to be. Hmm. Um, I was a prostitute. I had a blonde wig on my head, you know, and I'd been smoking crack in that hotel room for like three or four days straight. And suddenly I was awake and aware and present and I thought of my childhood self that wanted to go to Harvard. And I, I was 20, I was a high school dropout. I hadn't been in school for years. And that, that's, that's the other one that stands out that moment where I just knew I could feel my future. And it was like this moment, if you don't get up and get out of here, 
you will just be on an endless path of drug use, prostitution, and quitting and restarting and quitting and restarting and quitting and restarting. Wow. So I think I speak for everyone in the audience when I say I'm so grateful that you had the ability to listen at that moment and make that choice because you're here to change the world, you know, and that would have been a dead end. Yeah. Yeah. Very dead end. Yeah. Totally acknowledge you for that. So tell us about the addiction piece because it's so huge. And, um, and I, I, I love that you've brought the addiction model to bear on, on our relationships to food, because many people don't, don't see what you saw so clearly having been an addict and then becoming a food addict. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for some people, it's really obvious. And for, and for even for people for whom it's obvious, it's often not so obvious. So, so what I want to say about food addiction is I don't think it's a binary. I don't think you're either a food addict or not a food addict. I think it's a continuum. And this is why um, in the instrument that I developed called the susceptibility scale to measure food addiction, it's not a binary. It doesn't just say, bing, yep, you're a food addict. No, you're not a food addict. It gives you a score from one to 10 where you can say, you know, okay, so six, right? On a scale from one to 10, are you a food addict? Well, you're a six. So does that mean you're a food addict? It means you got enough addiction on board that it might be problematic if you try to take off excess weight. It might be that you find yourself um, sometimes overeating where you intend to have a moderate amount of food, but you find yourself overeating in a way that feels like you've lost control a bit over how much you eat. But it might mean that you don't, you know, binge your brains out on a regular basis. And it might mean that if you keep certain foods out of the house, that's enough because you won't go out of your way to get them right at a clutch moment. If you're about to watch Netflix and the box of chocolates isn't in the house, you won't sit down. But if it's in the house, you'll grab it and then you'll eat more than you intended. So the strategy is don't keep the box of chocolates in the house. Right. Whereas for someone like me, who's a 10 on the scale. Uh, that doesn't do it because I'll go to the store to get the box of chocolates. And I don't even care if it's a snowstorm out, right? Uh, if 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 I'm about to cozy up with Netflix for the evening, I'll make sure I got what I need. And a run to the store is not at all beyond what I'm willing to do. So, you know, it's a gradation. It's a gradation, right? And some of the things that that are in play, you know, are... Do you lose control over how much you eat once you start? Do you find yourself not feeling satisfied by, you know, a regular ample amount of food? Do you still not feel satisfied? Do you find yourself thinking too much about what you've eaten or not eaten, whether you're on your plan or off your plan? How many miles, how many calories, how many pounds is, is the food and weight rigmarole taking up more room of your headspace than feels warranted, right? For a balanced life. Like, why am I thinking about this so much? Um, do you have cravings? How powerful are they? Do they drive you out of your way? I mean, and this is where like, oh my gosh, I had to give up decaf coffee recently. I'm certifiable. Just God bless me. I'm ridiculous, but I I'd given up caffeine already, but decaf, I was like making my life unmanageable, you know, needing to swing by Starbucks for a decaf grande Americano. I don't put anything in it black, but there's a little bit of caffeine in that decaf and more so at Starbucks. I think they, they know, they know us addicts that they have a little bit of, yeah, <laughs> you know, and it was like, I felt enslaved a bit. So I recently gave up decaf. Right. But so the issue of cravings, is it making you go out of your way? Is it pulling on your, 
your mental headspace, you know, where you're thinking about a certain food or, or, or what have you. Um, yeah. Do you binge? Um, you know, have you tried to quit or, or change your eating over and over again with no lasting success? Those are some of the questions that can help you identify if you really just want to get down and dirty and get a number on it, then take the quiz and go to foodaddictionquiz.com, foodaddictionquiz.com and take the quiz and you'll get a number from one to 10. And, you know, anything seven or above is like, it's pretty high. And it means that you're going to want, what that really means is you're going to probably benefit from more structure and discipline around your eating than you've ever thought that that really some clarity around when to eat, how much to eat is going to be freeing for you, not confining someone who's a one or a two or a three on the scale. They don't need structure around how much or when to eat because their body just tells them and an intuitive eating approach works really well for them. You get into the range of seven, eight, nine, 10 and intuitive eating just doesn't work. I mean, that's the hallmark of addiction, right? Is that the urges, the intuitions of the brain have stopped being productive, healthy, and helpful. They've started being excessive and unhelpful and you can't actually tune in to like do I feel like a drink right now? Do I feel like a cigarette right now? It's like, well, of course you feel like a cigarette. You just quit smoking. You should not have a cigarette, right? So anyway. Like our signals become sort of untrustworthy. Yeah, and I hate to say that because it's such a nice construct to think that all of the signals coming from our body are always helpful all the time. But alas, it's just not true for some of us. It just isn't. Does that change after you're you know, sober from the foods that, get create those problems or the, or the substances that create those problems? Or does that, is that always the case? Do you find? Oh my gosh. Uh, yes and no. So, um, what happens is the way the brain works is it wires up these fiber tracks in the brain. And when you stop, when you change, when you really change, you, so let, so let's take me, right. I, I used to be a drug addict. I used to use drugs and I changed, I got clean and sober. I stopped using drugs over those years of using drugs. I wired up fiber tracks in the brain for the cues and the behaviors in response to those cues that led to my drug addiction. And when I stopped using drugs, I took all that neural energy and I diverted it into new pathways, pathways of going to meetings and, you know, a whole new life. Mm-hmm. Um, do the signals become reliable? Well, uh, to a point in your new life, yes, you'll have new fiber tracks and new ways of, of operating in the world, new behaviors that you engage in, in response to a certain cue, you won't, you'll do a different action and not the addictive using action. But what happens is if you go back to the behaviors or substances that used to be problematic, it's like it's like a dry riverbed. Once you start putting water in the, into the dry riverbed, the ri- it's, it's very quickly a river again, you know? So unfortunately, once you go back to the old patterns of action, the old fiber tracks are still there and they very quickly take up that neural energy and you're right back where you started. So um, as long as you stay vigilant with your new patterns of behavior and your new program of abstinence, whatever it is, then, then yes, you have, you have a new, like it's recovery is very real and 
you can, within that new context, trust the signals coming from your body to a significant degree, but not if you're going back to the old foods and eating behaviors that used to cause difficulty, then you'll quickly find that, um, that you're right back where you started. This makes so much sense to me from my own experience with um, gluten, actually. So mm. I, when I took the f- food freedom quiz the first time a few years ago, I was like, I took it for two people. I took it for the person I used to be when I was a college athlete and eating all these carbs and everything I want, lots of bread, lots of everything. And I took it for myself currently, which is gluten-free since I had Lyme disease and gluten-free. And I was two completely different numbers. Yeah. And I know that when I eat that again, it's like everything rears up and it's like, oh, we can do that. We can do that. And I just am like, yeah, we can do that. We can do that. You know? So that for me has become maybe a bright line, right? Because I know what happens to me if I eat the foods that used to kind of create those cravings. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so the, the, the quiz that I directed people to at foodaddictionquiz.com or foodfreedomquiz.com, um, it asks you to consider your eating when it was at its worst. So that would be you back when you were eating gluten and a college athlete. And that's not because that's going to be your experience forever and ever, but it, it, what it does mean is whatever that higher number was, you're always going to have to be vigilant like someone who has that higher number, right? It's, it's not that you're resigned to having that experience with food all the forever. I, I have the brain of a 10 on the susceptibility scale, but I live my life like a two or a three. I have no, I have like none of those issues anymore. Really. I don't have cravings. I, I feel satisfied after I eat my meals. I'm not thinking about food one way or the other. Um, I mean, really on my best day, sometimes I'm a one on the scale, but I have to be vigilant. I get to, it's almost like, it's like, it's like, it's like a borrowed <laughs> tiara, right? It's not, it's not my tiara to wear to the ball. It's a borrowed tiara, but I do, it's on lease and I get to wear it forever as long as I you know, whatever. I don't know if that's a good analogy. But no, I'm, I'm, I can visualize it. So, <laughs> so that's the super hopeful message. And I can imagine a lot of people listening to this who have already self-identified as like, oh yeah, I'm an, I'm a seven, I'm an eight, I'm a 12, um, are hopefully heard that, that piece about like, you feel like a one some days you live your life as a two, like that's pretty, that's pretty powerful. Um, and so now they want to know like, well, what are, what is she doing? Like, what's her secret? So are you willing to share some of your secret with us? Yeah, totally. So, um, so the, the program that I started is called bright line eating and there's four bright lines, sugar, flour, meals, and quantities. So the flour line isn't gluten it's flour, but you know, it's, it's, it's not impossible, but it's pretty hard to eat gluten if you're not eating any flour. Um, cause all wheat flour and stuff is out. Um, sugar is all sugar and it, it's also no sweeteners. So it's no honey, no agave, um, the sweeteners, um, have a, the, the sweet taste buds on the tongue have a direct connection to the addiction centers in the brain. Um, and sugar and flour, not perfectly, but almost perfectly. Uh, if you're not eating sugar and flour, you're eliminating the addictive foods essentially. And, um, the hyper palatable foods, the ultra processed foods, the foods that are really toxic. So in bright line eating, we eat only whole real foods. We don't have any bars or pills or shakes to sell you. Um, we're just going to tell you the, to go to the grocery store and buy actual food. <laughs> um, and that. yeah. And then the bright lines for meals and quantities really take care of the process addiction to eating itself. So 
food addiction is an interesting thing. It's both a substance and a process addiction. The substance of the, of the processed foods and then the process of eating itself. Um, and so, um, having boundaries around when we eat. So the, the initial recommendation is eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, three meals a day, don't snack, don't graze three meals a day. And then I encourage people to get a digital food scale and weigh their food, which sounds so crazy. I know, but it's actually, believe it or not, to make sure that you eat enough. There's a lot of food on the Brightline Eating Food Plan and you won't eat enough. Uh, otherwise, especially if you're trying to lose weight, you'll think that you need to eat less than you really do. And um, the Brightline Eating Plan is amazing for weight loss. As a matter of fact, research shows people lose and keep off four times more weight, four times, not 4%, four times more weight than on Noom, Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, Nutrisystem, Biggest Loser, E-Diets, any other program with published data in the scientific medical literature. Um, seriously, uh, pretty powerful. So um, yeah, so there's a, there's, a, there's a whole program. There's a whole community of us. It's the Brightline Eating community, the Brightline Eating membership, um, it's a monthly membership and I've got a curriculum. I'm a college professor at heart. So there's a, there's a bright roadmap. That's about a two year curriculum that it takes people through to completely transform your life and give you a full bright transformation. And that's body, mind, heart, soul. Um, of course, people often come in for weight loss, um, which is fine. Um, and we will give you guidance on how to find your bright body and know when to stop losing weight and, um, but really it's about so much more than that. It's a full identity shift. It's a full lifestyle. And um, yeah, that's, that's the, that's the gig. That's it. Well, and I, I want to, I want you to say a little bit more about the conceptual piece and the emotional piece, because I know that your program does that. I watched a webinar a couple of years ago where you had um, an expert in internal family systems. Are you still using that? And that was so exciting to see because, you know, it's not just about your physical body and like your habits, right? You have to transform kind of all limbs of your tree to get the kind of transformations that you're talking about. That's right. And so, yep, for anyone out there who doesn't know internal family systems, the idea here, oh, like why would we use internal family systems? Um, well, we are eating over stuff, right? We're eating, yes, we're eating because our brains are hijacked and we're eating because we have an addictive relationship with food or maybe we're, we don't have an addictive relationship with food. Maybe we just are eating over emotions and over stress that's possible too. And that's actually separate from addiction. You don't have to have addiction in play to be eating over emotions and stress, but internal family systems is a branch of psychology that provides, I think the most helpful and meaningful framework for a human being that it's possible to learn. So I think this is so helpful that I'm just going to share it if I may, because yeah, I, really I think people, if you don't know about it, you should know about it. So I'm glad yeah. you're here. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So the idea is that, and I just got to give a nod to the person who created it. So his name is Richard Schwartz and he's a professor. Um, and in the 1980s, he was a professor of um, family systems therapy. So this is different family system, family, you know, family systems therapy. It's the one that says there's an oldest child, a middle child and a youngest child. And, and that each person is shaped by the family dynamics in their family. So maybe they're the scapegoat of the family, or maybe they're the savior of the family or whatever. Anyway, he was treating bulimics, funny enough. Um, and he ran this clinical trial and discovered that um, his family systems therapy was not working at all. Like, like it was having zero <laughs> impact on the binge episodes of these patients with bulimia. And so we started interviewing them 
to find out how this could be. He really thought he was doing great therapy. So he was like, how is this not working? And so he interviews them. And, and what he hears them say is things like, well, why did I binge? I don't know. There was this, the, this part of me that just wanted to binge. And then there was this other part of me that thought, you know, no, we've been doing so well, we've got to keep our weight off da, da, da. And, and this part would argue with this part. And, and he realized, oh my goodness, my patients have a family system inside of themselves. They've got like a family dynamic going on and they're arguing with themselves. And that's where the term internal family systems comes from. So internal family systems. So it's abbreviated IFS. And over many more years of development, what Dick Schwartz came to was that each person has a true core, authentic, highest self. Mm. And that we know that we're approaching life from our highest self when we're in the eight C's, these words that start with C. So when we're calm, clear, compassionate, courageous, connected, confident, curious, when we're in those, when we're operating from that place, that calm, clear, connected, creative place, then we're in our authentic self. If we're anything else, if we're angry, if we're um, racy, if we're scared, if we're anything else, then we're in a part. We're, We're operating from not our whole authentic self, but a part of us. And now it gets really interesting because the landscape of parts actually breaks down in a way that makes so much sense. He said, look, there's two kinds of parts. There's wounded parts. And we all can relate to these. These are like the inner childs, the wounded inner child, right? And he calls them exiles because they're often tucked away, like exiled from from view, from sight. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's these wounded parts. And then there's protector parts. There's parts of us that are trying to protect us from being wounded. Makes sense, right? And so this is like anger would be a protective part. It's actually protecting a wound. Now, he said the protective parts um, can either come in in advance, like protecting us before wounding might happen. These are often controlling or managing parts, right? They want to arrange the world so that we don't get hurt. Um, So they can be controlling. They could also be caretaking. They could be going in to be extra nice and kind and, and so that everybody likes us, right? So those are all manager parts. And then there's, there's protector parts that come in after we're already hurt. So that would be like anger, right? Comes in after we're already hurt, but all the addictive parts um, also come in after we're already hurt. The binging part, the overeating part, the, um, the watching pornography part, the smoking cigarettes part, you know, there's so many ways, you know, the, the hiding under the covers part, the binge, the watching Netflix part, right? These are all the ways that we can. So, um, What's helpful about this, I think, there's so many things that are helpful about it, but one is to learn to talk about ourselves as parts. Um, because without that, if you think of yourself as one unified, one unified self, then it just feels like you're kind of um, at odds with yourself all the time, or maybe even crazy, right? Because why, if you really want this, why would you do that? right? And it's like, oh, well, it's a part of you that wants this. And then it's a different part of you that's doing that. And when you, when you separate out the parts, it actually makes perfect sense. And just for those who, because as a psychologist, I'm just aware this sounds maybe frighteningly close to dissociative identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality disorder. And let me just say, it's not that at all. Um, uh, the idea here is that every healthy personality has parts and that you couldn't have it any other way. And just so you know, the, um, the luminaries throughout time that, 
that came to this conclusion are many, including, shall we just say, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, Freud, Nietzsche, the Bible. Um, I could go, you know, Jung, I could go on. But, you know, Socrates maybe said it best. He said, um, one unified mind cannot both want and not want at the same time. Therefore, we're all at least two. Right. And anyone who's ever sat there and wanted a cookie and not wanted a cookie at the same time can attest to the fact that there's two parts, right? There's the part that wants it and the part that doesn't. So um, we teach people in Bright Line Eating how to know their parts. And, and with a food journey, this is so apropos because we often have a rebel part that rebels against any structure with our food that says, I don't need that. I can just do it myself. We have an isolator part that keeps us back from community or connection that would actually be helpful on our journey. Um, uh, we've got a food indulger part that really wants to just indulge in food. And we've got a food controller part that wants to manage our food and get it lined up and buttoned up already and help us lose weight and help us get healthy already with our food. And so understanding these different parts um, really helps us on our journey just to name it, to sort it out, and then to work with it and to heal ultimately, because in IFS, you really learn to heal the wounded parts, which is where the deepest change comes from. I love that. I'm, and I'm so grateful for that overview because I think it was really clear and helpful. And I, I think it's a huge piece of any kind of change that people are making is to sort of start to recognize the various facets of themselves that have different stakes in the game, you know, and to honor everybody's stake. You know, you can't just like, if you've got some people in there who are like really committed to getting their way, like you're not going to just be able to do something different without really having that internal conversation in some way. Exactly. And give them a voice. They just want to be heard. They just want to be heard. They come by their perspective really honestly and agreed when they're digging in, the behavior is going to keep coming out sideways. And often all it takes is a deep breath and a curiosity. Curiosity is one of the eight C's, right? When you're curious, you can go inside with some compassion and curiosity and say, Hey, you know, I noticed that you keep, you know, driving me to the convenience store for that pint of ice cream. But here we are dealing with lupus and it's not helping, you know, and you know, Hey, so can we talk about this? And then the part says, yeah, but you know, I'm so afraid that blah, 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 blah. And it just like, it unloads all its concerns. And you could say, oh, I so get that, sweetheart. I so get why you would feel that way. And can you see that this is actually making me sick? You're trying to help me. You're trying to ease this concern here, but the pint of ice cream is actually hurting me. Can we work on a different, what if we, when that scary thing comes up, what if I worked with you to hold your hand and we could address it this different way? And sometimes with just a 10 minute internal dialogue like that, you can clear up, you know, the most, you know, long-standing difficult behavior patterns. Yeah. Well, there's something so powerful really about, about bringing awareness to something and giving a voice to something and just shining the light, you know, put the light on it and say, okay, here we are. Is this who we really want to be? Is this who we still need to be now that you've been seen? little part of me that wants this. So beautiful. So I have, there's a couple of questions in the chat I want to get to, but, but I have one big question for you. And that is, is there anyone who, let's say there's a person who self-identifies as having, you know, being a seven to 10 and they say, wow, bright lining is for me. It could be for me, could be helpful. Um, Is there any of those, anyone who shouldn't use bright lining? I'm thinking in particular of people who, um, you know, are bulimics or are anorexic or have disordered eating already. And that's an addiction of its own, right? Like that becomes its own kind of 
um, triggerable event. And I'm worried about people potentially getting triggered by the rigidity, the necessary rigidity. Yeah. Right line eating. So talk to that if you would. Yeah, sure. Um, eating disorders are a special case. And um, some people have an eating disorder without food addiction. And some people have an eating disorder with food addiction. Um, uh, Ashley Gearhart of the University of Michigan has done some really interesting research on this. Of active bulimics, it might be close to 100% in the active state who, who have food addiction. Um, but of people with a restricting disorder like anorexia, it's a, it's often a much lower percentage, but not zero of, of people with an eating disorder overall, it's about 50% who have, um, food addiction. And I don't think it's true that an eating disorder is food addiction or is an addictive disorder necessarily. Um, and so, um, what I would say is, first of all, we have professional support in Brightline Eating on a group level for people who have who who are concerned about um, eating disorder issues. We do not have one-on-one therapy for someone with an active eating disorder. So, if someone has an active eating disorder, we would hope that they have professional treatment. And unfortunately, it's hard to come by someone. Um, who is a eating disorders professional who's open to an abstinence-based approach like Brightline Eating because the way eating disorder treatment, um, sort of the way those the, the way those people are educated is that all food rules are bad. And the first thing you've got to do with someone with bulimia or anorexia or binge eating disorder is disabuse them of their food rules. Um, food rules like I don't eat sugar. <laughs> um, the challenge is that um, for the 50% who have food addiction, they are likely never going to recover with a non-abstinence-based approach. So there are a lot of people actually with an eating disorder who should do Brightline Eating. And we have Dr. Joy Jacobs on staff who provides support there and can potentially help you to find maybe um, a, a professional therapist or, or someone to work with you who does support your treatment for food addiction as well. Um, the numbers are increasing um, of people who who treat people with eating disorders and who have noticed basically, geez, my patients when they're when they're told to eat, you know, a cookie, a cupcake, they always go off the rails. And there are there are subsets of people in that population who just maybe should never be eating those foods. It's just not productive. Um, we do find that for some small but consistent percentage of people who have strains of an eating disorder background or maybe an eating disorder from the past that they've recovered from, that Brightline eating re-triggers that eating disorder because of the structure of it, the rigidity of it, as you mentioned. Um, and you know, rigidity is an interesting word, you know, structure, discipline, rigidity, okay, you know, that's fine, whatever. Um, and what I would say is with an IFS approach, like if you start to understand the food controller part, the part that might get excited of like, let's say, let's say someone had been, had binge eating disorder or anorexia or whatever in the past or bulimia in the past and has recovered, but now is carrying 20 pounds that they wish they weren't carrying or some number of pounds, whatever. And is noticing also that they're eating, that there's something off with their eating that they're not loving. They could start doing bright line eating. And what I would say is just be really mindful of the part of you that might go, oh, we get to restrict our food now. Oh, you know, now, oh, how thin can we get, right? And so what I would say is 
if you're willing to shine the light on it and you're willing to get support from Dr. Joy and from the community that we have that's separate for people with an eating disorder background, bright line eating can absolutely be a path to that next level of health and wellness. Um, but be mindful of it. And, and it might be that bright line eating isn't for you. Bright line eating is not for everybody. Um, so I would say either could be true. It's a nuanced answer for sure. Yeah. But I love that there's support in there for the people who are challenged by it or need extra help or even just kind of direction and resources. Right. So there's, um, there's a couple questions in the chat. Would you be open to answering some of these? Of course. Okay. First one from John. I have an 80 year old friend on 10 or more medications with various forms of cancer, 50 pounds overweight and in total denial. Not sure which party's in denial, but there's a lot of things in that sentence, John, how can I help him go to your program? I understand people will die for their beliefs as limited as they may be. Oh, John. Um, I often say bright line eating, unfortunately, isn't for people who want it. It's for people who need it. <laughs> and it's really your friend's call, whether they need it you know, sorry, did I just say that backwards? It's not for people who need it. It's for people who want it. I think I said that backwards. Scratch that reverse. Yep. Got yeah, it. Scratch and reverse. It's for people who want it and are willing to work it. Right. And so John, um, other than just, um, so I think there's probably nothing you can do is my honest answer. But if you wanted to try something, I would say, get my book, bright line eating the first one, bright line eating the science of living happy, thin and free, get that first book, read it, flag a page that has some sort of interesting thing on it that you think your friend might like, give them the book and say, Hey, I just read this book. I loved it. And I thought of you on page 42 because of this cool story that I thought you would like leave them the book. And then really the rest is in their hands. Um, uh, it's on audible too. Um, and you know, the membership is at brightlineeating.com, but they have to want it, John, there's nothing you can do to make them want it. I know there's I mean, really, if you think about it, there's 2 billion people right now who are overweight or obese and food addicted in this world. And, you know, uh, most of them are not going to be doing bright line eating anytime soon. It's, it's a sad state of affairs, but there's really nothing we can do. Um, fundamentally. I'm so sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. Thank you for that answer. Um, from Kim, I'm on my 12th day being sugar and gluten-free. Good job, Kim. Woo! I'm wondering if insomnia can be part of a detox. I'm doing okay with not giving into cravings, but the lack of sleep is difficult. Would you speak to the idea of detox and does that happen with your BL years? And what, what do you think? Detox is very real. Um, sugar and flour are real drugs. Um, and yes, insomnia can be part of it in a couple ways. One is that um, an abrupt detox like that. I mean, even if it's not abrupt, it can, it can be perceived by the system as a stressful event. And so stress hormones can come in and keep you awake. Also flour, especially is quite a sedative. And so if you were used to eating, if you just think about what you used to eat late at night, you know, odds are that you used to kind of sedate yourself to sleep and you're not, um, having the benefit of that anymore. It does typically pass. And so hang in there. Thank you. All right. Tammy just wants to give you a shout out. She says, I've lost 134 pounds on Brightline eating. And thank you, Susan, for this amazing program. Oh, hey, Tammy. Amazing. Speech I bet you get a lot of those love letters every day. Yeah, I do, but they never get old. They yeah. never get old. It's amazing. Yeah. So cool. Amy asked about OCD. And the question is, do you believe that addiction is a form of OCD or maybe the inverse OCD is a kind of addiction? I'm not sure. How to, how to phrase that question, but what's the relationship between OCD and addiction? 
you know, um, my understanding of OCD is it's a, a pattern of thinking, right, of intrusive, unwanted thoughts that where um, doing some sort of compulsive behavior temporarily alleviates the thought, but then you're in a, in a rut and you need to kind of keep doing these behaviors. For example, you know, I have a friend who has OCD and she didn't learn to drive until her late thirties. Cause every time she got behind the wheel of a car, she would, you know, her brain would tell her, you know, you got to check the rear view mirror 14 times, or you're going to crash check, check, check. And she wasn't a safe driver because she kept doing these behaviors. Um, it could be that that's a subset of addiction. I, I tend to think of them as separate myself. Um, I tend to think of them as separate, but yeah. I'm not sure I'm right about that. I know that OCD used to be thought of as an anxiety disorder and then they moved it out of the anxiety classification and so forth. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I can, I can throw in on this one. Cause I see a lot of OCD in my patients with Lyme disease. And a lot of times when the Lyme gets treated, the OCD goes away. So I'll just put that out there. It sometimes can be a toxic insult to the brain. That's perpetuating inflammation. A lot of people, a lot of kids with pandas, which is sort of the autoimmune um, brain response to having some, some kind of toxin or infection that's sort of stimulating the autoimmune reaction that can lead to OCD as well. And that can sometimes go away with proper treatment. So I'll just put that out there as a um, public service announcement for people. All right. Lori says, how can you best bring yourself back after gearing away from your bright lines? Um, I think support really, you know, really look at your support structure. So first and foremost, are you really doing it right? Are you in the membership? Are you in the community? Um, do you have a mastermind group? Do you have a buddy? Um, join the next round of the Gideon games like really look and make sure that your support is short up. I know a lot of people think of themselves as doing bright line eating, but when I really get in there, it's like, they're not connected up, right? It takes, it, it takes the community really to form an identity that's solid enough to withstand the daily onslaught of living in this society that does food the way it does and is constantly eroding, you know, your conception of what it, you know, what we do here in bright line eating. So that's the first thing. And usually that's enough. Usually that's enough. Once your support is in place, then it just gets back to the fundamentals of write your food down at night. And then the next day, eat only in exactly that. You know, um, do you have the bright line eating food journal? Just even that tool is so sweet just to be able to write your food down the night before and, you know, give yourself the gold star at the end of the day. And um, it's, it's really a very simple program based on fundamentals. But if you don't have the support in place, it's going to erode. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it really gets to this idea that healing happens best in community always yeah. like whatever the problem, the answer is community <laughs> and, you know, accountability. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, from Mara, I've been on Brightline eating for 23 months and I've lost 155 pounds, Mara. Nice job. Yeah. It's the only program that has ever worked in my lifelong journey. Have you ever considered tracking how many people have lost over 150? I believe those numbers are very high now. Thanks. Susan Pierce Thompson. Yeah. So we need to create the, um, bright transformation database because we want a million bright transformations by 2030. And, um, I think I had shortened that to 2025 recently, but I think, I think, I think it needs to be 2030 anyway. Um, and we, we need the database to track that. And we would ask for, you know, starting and ending numbers and we would be able to pull that information. So yes, we need that. We need that. And, um, 
you know, what I want to do is I want to write, uh, I haven't decided yet if a book or, but definitely a journal article, uh, maybe called something like the bright 100 and to look at people who went from class three obesity to a normal BMI and are maintaining it for years because the medical community really thinks that that's not really possible non-surgically, you know? And we have so many people in Brightline Eating who've done that. So I want to really look at people who've done that. It's, um, it's possible and, you know, it's, it's remarkable. So, yeah. yeah, well, that's just one of a number of things that I can think of off the top of my head that the medical community doesn't get. And on behalf <laughs> of the medical community, I just want to say, I'm sorry for our continuous misinformation with authority that we promulgate in so many ways, including this one. Well, I can't even say apology accepted because yeah. <laughs> there's, there's yeah. a, a rebel part of me that wants to say, well, stop it then, you know? Yeah, no. And I, I live that, I live that rebel moment too. Um, Mara says, yes, a book, the bright 100. Yes. Yes. So you've got your first, uh, first follower there. Benny says, I believe this is the most powerful and revolutionary program created. And I'm so grateful for all you do. I did bright line eating for the first time last year, lost 60 pounds in five months. Whoop, whoop, Benny. I fell off the path due to high stress from traveling and autoimmune health issues, chronic Lyme and mast cell activation system, to name a few. My food choices are incredibly narrow due to tons of sensitivities, which is very triggering. What do you suggest to not feel too deprived on BLE? Oh my gosh, Benny. You know, here's the truth, Benny. I eat almost the same thing every day. And... I suggest you work with the part of you that feels deprived because that part needs a lot of love, that part that feels like there needs to be more variety. Um, but if you, if you talk with that part and find other ways to get variety, it could be, you know, um, I'm just imagining the other ways that you could get variety, right? But there are ways to introduce spontaneity, variety, color, um, into your life spice. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the reality is that sometimes life is hard and sometimes we have to accept things that aren't ideal, you know, aren't, they aren't the way we would wish, but there's also sometimes a blessing in that. And, you know, it seems like this is an opportunity to surrender to, you know, eating a very few food choices and just making them your routine and finding a different way to work with the part of yourself that feels really frustrated and sad and however it feels about yeah. that and to find other ways to, to find the happiness that that part is seeking. Yeah. It reminds me of when I sort of was in my near-death experience with Lyme disease and I ultimately had to decide to make a lot of the same choices that Benny are talking about making. Um, I, I didn't drink alcohol. I didn't eat gluten. I did. I went off all the allergens and, um, and for me, I never, ever could have made that decision without the a priori commitment to, I think I'm still wanting to be alive. Like, I think I actually want to still live because if I wanted to live, but not make those choices, it wouldn't have been living, right. It would have been misery and even potential death. Like it was that bad. And I think that that's a really tough question, but I think it needs to be asked. And this gets to the earlier questions and the struggle that's happening in the Q and a about like, well, what about these people who won't change? And what about like, some people are never going to change. Some people will never decide to change and that's their journey, right? That is their journey. We have to let go of the need to heal everybody, help everybody and focus on the one person we can help. Yeah. My aunt, um, died last month. Oh, I'm sorry. 
it's okay. And she died of food addiction and she died absolutely having another way, right? Like knowing all right, knowing bright line eating, as a matter of fact, she did bright line eating six years ago, seven years ago, um, for vanity for her, her daughter was getting remarried and she did it for a couple months and her, her dementia lifted and she lost 30 pounds in two months and she felt great, looked great. And um, then she had some cake at the wedding and never got it back and never even tried to get it back. And her three daughters, my cousins, um, begged her, pleaded with her as her dementia got worse and her diabetes got worse. And I was, I flew out to California and I was by her bedside for the last 10 days of her life. And her throat had closed up. Her diabetes was so bad at the end of her life that um, after 11 days of fasting, her blood sugar was 351. Wow. Yeah. After 11 days of no food. And, um, and then she died. And, um, and the reality was, you know, her, her daughters saw it as the, the biggest um, betrayal really like F you almost that she, cause they all have little kids and you know, that really, if she'd have changed her eating, she would have lived 10 years longer, probably who knows, but you know, she was 73. She didn't need to die at 73. And um um, she just, you know, it's a mystery why some people can't or won't change, you know, and addiction is, it's, it's a, it's a beast. It's really, really a strong disease. And I don't begrudge anyone. I didn't, I don't begrudge my aunt and I don't begrudge anyone who decides that they want to eat their pizza and their ice cream. You know, I feel like in this society, it's, it is hard to swim upstream and do something different with your food. And it does take a big commitment and it, it's a whole new identity and a different way to live. And it, it's, it's a no brainer for me. I'm so happy living this life, but not everybody wants it and not everybody can see it or will do it anyway. Yeah. Just- and we, we all can be lovable on our own path, right? We don't have to be on the same path to be worthy of love and acceptance. Absolutely. Well said. Good news. So in the last few minutes here, is there anything else you feel like this audience could benefit from hearing from you? Any last thoughts, any steps they could take besides the food freedom quiz if they wanted to work with you or learn more about this this pathway? Yeah, I would say, um, well, first of all, Kristen, I just have so enjoyed my time with you. I think you're great. This is- Oh, I feel the same. Um, And thank you for the work you're doing with your community. I'm so grateful that there's doctors like you who are working closely with people who need really extra support. Um, and you know, my imagination, Kristen, is that the people in your community, um, really with the medical issues they have really, really need to eat a certain way. And I don't mean the bright line eating way. I mean, like, you know, nutrition is going to be a really big part of the prescription, you know, for, for turning it around and for a significant percentage of people adhering to a protocol like that is going to be hard if there's addiction in play. And so, um, bright line eating can really, really help with that. It can really help with that. Even, even for me, I didn't used to be able to take medicine, you know, like supplements or whatever, uh, regularly. Cause I was just so higgledy piggledy and, and loosey goosey with my life because my eating wasn't regular anyway. So for anyone out there who feels like they want to give bright line eating a try, I would say, just go start the free trial. You can start it for free today. Um, you just go to brightlineeating.com. It's just B R I G H T 
L-I-N-E, right? LineEating.com. Um, and, you know, yeah, we'd love to see you in there. Give it a try. Start the planning and preparation process. And we have a bright roadmap with, you know, really clear steps uh, along the way. It's like a two-year curriculum that will totally transform your life. And you've, you've heard already from people in the chat, you know, it really, really does work. It really does. And it's worth it. You're worth it. Well, that's a beautiful place to end. Thank you again for being here. Thank you for all that you're doing in the world. Thank you for the love and care that you give your members and you've given our audience today. I just really appreciate you, Susan. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thanks for the invitation to be here with your community. I'm so grateful. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Healing Grove podcast. If you liked it, please be sure to like and subscribe. And if you want to deepen your experience further, consider grabbing a copy of the Healing Grove playbook. With journal prompts for this podcast and 41 others, it's the perfect place to record your learnings, keep track of the tools you explore, and reflect on your own experience. Finally, it's important to mention that even though I am a doctor, nothing you hear on this podcast, whether from myself or my guests, constitutes medical advice. Any intervention you try should always be discussed with and supervised by a trusted member of your own healing team. Thanks for listening and see you next time in the Healing Grove.